today's scripture comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, verses 6 to 11. You can find this on page 615 of the Pew Bibles. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This is the word of the Lord. I am uh, genuinely impressed. So many of you are here on Labor Day weekend. <laughs> you there, you guys just don't have any money to go on vacations. <laughs> um, Actually, I'm, I'm really tickled that you're here. We are in uh, a sermon series on the Word of God, on Scripture. And um, just to, for those of you who may, not have been, or who may not have been with us for one or two of those messages, or all of those messages, um, quick recap. The first message was about how the Word is more than our, our, our experience, our intuitions. We tend to go into the world, we have certain experiences, and then we just have a certain feeling, and then we think... Well, I kind of know what's truth for me, my truth. But actually, we need a word, and a word which is above all wisdom and even above your own intuitions. Part two was just about the, there is a word, and that word is a divine word, and that's the scriptures. The scripture is inspired by God. It is inerrant, and it is fully, completely reliable, and it is above us. It is above every culture. It is above every philosophy. And it is worthy of our great esteem and of our deep trust. And then I gave you kind of a two, um, two messages that I, I consider somewhat bookends. One is that there's a lot of views that all the religions are the same and they're mostly about morality and they teach you different mythologies. But what I said in part three of this series was that the Bible is actually about history. <laughs> it is stuff about things that have actually happened and that God has broken into history to walk with the people and to show himself and then through his word so that we can know him. And then last week, uh, I, I got a message from one, one of the feedback from one of the brothers was that, that was nerdy, <laughs> but that was good. Right? And what, what I, I gave you this kind of um, extensive PowerPoint, and really what I did was I gave you a distillation of certain biblical scholarship to let you know that this book that we have, all the, the manuscripts, the Greek, the Hebrew, that that underlies it, makes this, it is not, not even close, this is the most reliable book from the ancient world that ever is, and there's really no second place. So I want, so I, I, I shared that with you last week, because there's lots of people who doubt even that these, uh, this is a, a reliable text. Now, as you can see, each is a piece of something that we're trying to get you to, which is, why should you trust this book called the Bible? Why should you trust this thing called the Scriptures? And it is very much attacked, and there's all kinds of different ways 
um, that very sophisticated, learned people try to attack the Bible, which we addressed in the last couple weeks. Um, but there is a lot of just where the common person on the street, the man or woman on the streets, has doubts. Is this really from God? Can, you, can I really believe this? And especially as we go into these last couple of messages, um, you know, I'm gonna, we're going to put away all the nerdy stuff. <laughs> and we're going to get really at what's in the heart of, of the scriptures. Now, um, today I'm going to give you a message about the argument I want to give you as to why we should trust the scriptures is simply because it has power. <laughs> it is an unbelievably powerful book. And indeed, I, I would venture and argue to say it is the most powerful book that's ever been written. And now let me say this, that will ever be written because no other book is written by God, <laughs> okay? Uh, so you could be Shakespeare, you could be Confucius, you could be some, you know, the latest, most brilliant, you know, Harvard or Stanford PhD that writes a bestseller, but all those are peons compared to the power of the Bible, because the Bible is God's book. And in order to um, just get out this, first I, I want to, you to just look at this. So today, I don't, I don't usually do this, but I, I, um, there's no one passage I could have gone to. So um, just let, let me just take you to Isaiah 55, and then I'm going to take just blitz you through a handful of other verses. Um, I'm going to I have I have a brief PowerPoint. I, I told you last week I don't usually use PowerPoint, but here I am. I'm going to do it again today. All right. Um, but here's just the way Isaiah 55 puts it, which is that. Um, and I'm all of a sudden lost. All right, here we go. Here we go. 55. <laughs> Looking at the wrong part of the book. Um, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways. For as, high, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Do you know how you can know God's ways and God's thoughts, which are as high as the heavens are above us? By reading the Bible. <laughs> That's how you can know. And then you know how God's word, the Bible is God's word put into pages. God's word used to go out with the Israelites. And what he would say is he would speak to certain men called prophets. And then the prophets would declare his word and then false prophets. And then there'd be, you know, all kinds of controversies. But that still goes on, by the way. We have, today we just call them false preachers. <laughs> and then we have biblical preachers. But God's word still goes out. It's just on the page, and it's still proclaimed and preached like I'm doing for you now. And by the way, some of you think, well, does, isn't there a lot of really stupid pastors? And, and a lot of the pastors aren't very smart men, and they're not, you know, they're not, they're not good speakers. Uh, well, I'm going to share with you a verse to let you know that that's normal. God uses regularly weak men. But listen to what he says uh, about the, this passage. says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God didn't give this to be a science book. <laughs> God didn't give this to uh, like answer every little question, like, okay, can I get rich? God didn't give us this book to so that you can, you, know, you can open it up and go, oh, uh-oh, I'm supposed to marry her. <laughs> you know, some people do that. She's like, shall, shall I marry her? Am I supposed to take this job, God? And then they pop this thing open, and then they go like this, and then they go, and then it's some weird verse, and then they go, 
oh, okay, now I know God. That is not why God gave, that's not what the word is for, okay? But these are some of the weird things that people have done. They read this thing to, to, you know, to try to get rich. They, they use this thing like a, you know, like a fortune, you know, like a fortune cookie. The, the, the Bible is not a fortune cookie, please, so please don't use it that way. But for what God did, it, it has incredible power. Um, so that's one of the arguments I want to make. What, well, simply put, um, you know, simply, what did he use? What did he give the Bible for? So you could know him. So you could know his ways, which are higher than all his ways. You can know his thoughts. And so then as you know him, you can give yourself to him and be loved by him. That's what the Bible's for. Right? Now, I could say one other thing about this. Um, People are really messed up. And I don't think that's really hard. I don't have to make a case for that, do I? <laughs> uh, you and I, I mean, if we're really honest, it's not even just that people are messed up. I'm messed up. And the Bible is here to have power. There is a power to help you and to me in that place where we're most deeply messed up. So you want to know where the power is in life. It's, it's right here. If you will read it, if you will know it, if you'll believe it. Now let's go to a, a couple other uh, verses. So just so you can see, I, I, I'm, I'm not cherry picking a passage here. Um, is it on? Is it on? Do you want to get this on? Oh, yes. No, is that? It's not the right. No. <laughs> This is the wrong PowerPoint. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't remember. You know, I'm just going to, we're going to do it this way. Go to Romans chapter 1. Let's, let's do it the old-fashioned way, all right? Turn that off. All right? <laughs> that was the wrong sermon, as you can see, all right? Actually, I was going to do this. Let's, let's do this quickly. I, I, don't know, I, I don't want to take forever to do this, but um, let's do this first. So keep your finger on Romans 1. Go to Hebrews 4, verse 12. It's a good thing I still remember which verse is. <laughs> uh, all right? Hebrews 4, verse 12. Um, and if you're not there, you could just listen. Um, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirits, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Listen. The word of God is living. It is active. Do you understand? The Bible is alive. <laughs> it's a living, it's kind of a strange thing. Because almost for all of us, this is an inanimate object. So this is not the Bible, this is another book. It's an, it feels like an inanimate object. It's not any more alive than this clicker or this piece of paper or anything else. But the Bible, according to the Word of God, according to the Scripture itself, it's alive, it is active, it has power, it has power to cut us. It's sharper than any two-edged sword and could take you down to the deepest places of your heart. Hmm. How about Romans chapter 1? Romans chapter 1, verse 16 these are all really famous passages. I'm not, uh, I'm not cherry-picking something really obscure here now, okay? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And let, somebody say something about this. The gospel is not the whole of the word of God. It's only the most important word in the word, okay? 
So, in fact, the whole of the Bible culminates into this word called the gospel, which is the message about how Jesus Christ came to redeem us and meet us and then reveal who God is so we can know him. So in one sense, you could say the purpose of the whole Bible is to get you to the gospel, which will get you to Jesus. But it really, the gospel is still a word. It's a word. It's, it's the culminating word of the word. But here's what the Bible says about this word. For I'm not ashamed of this word, this most important word called the gospel, for it is the power of God. Hear that word again. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is a power. You get it? It isn't just words and concept that goes in your head, and then, you know, just like any other book that you read it, and then you forget about it, and then it feels dead. It's, it has power. And then let me, let me ask you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So that's just the next book of the Bible over. Get a little water here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It is verse 18. It is a, it's a good thing I, I have my reading glasses on. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm getting to that age where, you know, I'm just like, mm, okay. Um, I have my reading glasses on. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word, here we go again, the word of the cross, that's just the gospel. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, here it is again, it is the power of God. The word of the cross is power. Flip the page to chapter 2. And this is the last one I'll go over before I, let me, I'll get into the rest of my message. Chapter 2. Um, this one is, is a life verse for me. And I want to say something about this. Um, it's a little personal and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. The testimony of God is the scriptures, by the way. Okay? For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What did I want to know among you? I want to give you the gospel. That's what he's saying. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That message, that's the gospel. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. There it is that word again, of power. That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men. Not in how smart I am and how good my preaching is and how, how great my experience is and my education is. That's not what I wanted you to have your faith rest in. I wanted to rest in the power of God. He just said in the previous uh, chapter, what is the power of God? The word of the cross. When I came to be with you, I did not want to be with all these smartness or demonstrations of my, of my sophistication. In fact, I was trembling and I was weak and I wanted you to have a rest in the power of God, which is the word of the cross. Let me say a little something personal before I get the rest of my message here. Um, these last few weeks, you know, I, this, in some ways, every, every solid preacher should be able to give a, a lot of the content I've given you over these last few weeks. Um, a, great, a, a, great, a great resonance, a great trust, trustworthiness in, in the Bible. 
But um, actually, you know, I go, I know this stuff, and I'll prepare my messages, and I'll, and I'll preach this to my people. Um, but actually, throughout these last couple of weeks especially, you know, we give you these, uh, these devotional passages, these quiet time passages, and, you know, you're, you know, your pastors, we do these quiet times too. We don't just give them to you so you can do them. We do them too. And um, I, I was sharing with Young this past week that um, as I was looking at all these passages that, that can continually exalt the power of God's word, um, this, I, I started thinking about this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I preached this in my very first year. Um, this is I'm now going into my eighth year. This is seven and a half years of being the pastor here. And um, when I came into this church, I want you to understand something about uh, our, our society. What do you think really has power to impact your life? What is power? Isn't it um, if I'm smart enough or if I'm, if I'm good looking enough <laughs> or if I have some job thing, or I have something in my resume, or if I have some great talent, right? So if I can hit a ball farther, or if I'm just super strong, or if I can run faster, all these things, or if I have the, or I have the most important connections, I have the most powerful people, people, then when I have those connections, that'll impact my life, and then my life will turn out great, right? Isn't that what we think? We'll have success, we'll have power, but... Do you know that pastors, we're not supposed to think like this, but we do. We do. Um, pastors regularly go to church, and if the people don't show up, we just feel like we're failures. And if we don't talk in a smart way, people will go, well, that guy's not very smart, so I'm not going to go listen to him. If we don't have snazzy music up here, you won't show up, and then we fail, and then we feel like we don't have power in the church. And and then we go to conferences to learn how to be better pastors, but then usually the conference speakers are the big-name pastors that have thousands and thousands of members, and they're these really smart guys, and they talk really well, and they have this really great resume, and so then everybody sits there. The Bible says it's the gospel that has power, but actually we go to these conferences, and we're like, oh, that guy's power. I don't. That guy's power. I've got to get some of that dude's power. That's, that's what we think. And I know, I read this, and in my head, I believe this. But in my heart, I regularly do not believe this. And so while I was going through my quiet times this past week, I, 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 this is the way I said it to Young. I realized, I, I was meditating on, on these verses, and one of the things I was thinking is, I go into the Bible because I, I you know, I, of course, I, I know it better than most of you, and I go into the Bible, but mostly what I'm thinking is, I'm going to go into the Bible, I'm going to learn something out of it, and then I'm going to bring it, and then I'm going to use it for my people or for me. So in other words, there's my life, this thing called my life, and then there's something called the Bible, which is just a piece of my life, and I'm going to go in and draw something out of it, and it'll be useful to me. But I started to realize, as I was reading all these passages, that actually it's backwards. The real power is the Word itself, and the Word is a gargantuan, incredible thing that's going and reshaping the world and people's lives. And what I really need to do is to be immersed in the Bible so that the Bible can use me. <laughs> you understand? Not that I will use the Bible and pull something out of it for me, but that I will go into the Bible and God will use me because His power will envelop me. It'll just utterly immerse me. And my life will be lost in the Bible, but actually it will be found. 
And I'm a pastor. <laughs> I'm a professional Christian. And I can forget this. And I do. And I know you do too. And I hope that you'll listen to today's message and esteem all these verses that say the Bible has power. Now, I wanna, I'm going to do this in three parts, and I'm going to try to go quickly through the first two parts because I really want to sit in this third one. I know most of you guys know that you, sit, you talk a lot about part one, and then you talk a lot about part two, and then you get, like, you get like three minutes in part three, Pastor, but today I, I want to flip it the other round. Here are my three parts. Part one, where, how do you know the Bible has power? And I'm going to give you three pieces of evidence. And the third is the most important. The first one is the wisdom and power, the wisdom of the Bible and the power of the law. The Bible gives us wisdom and law. Okay, that's for part one. Part two, I want to talk about the Bible transforms hurting, broken sinners. That's not a theory. It happens. It happens all the time. And part three, I want to share with you, take you to something that I learned from Piper. He calls it the peculiar glory. I want to talk about the peculiar glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. Um, the first one, I, and I, want, I don't want to spend too much time in this, the wisdom of the Bible, the law of, of, of God. Um, do you know that every society wants to know what is right and what is wrong and what is wise and what's above us and what is from God? You know, every society wants to know that. And so there's a lot of people today, you know, we live in a society that's increasingly become secular. This area has, you know, the Bay Area has two of the greatest universities in the world. It's one of the reasons why the Bay Area is, is considered such a, such a smart place. Um, because quite literally some of the most brilliant people in the world come live here and then they find out that the weather is fantastic and the food is good and then the, then the real estate prices completely shoot up. So that's why it is the way it is here. But in our area, we tend to think, you know, who needs religion? <laughs> but let, let me tell you, every society seeks religion because every society want, has this question, is there wisdom that's higher than my wisdom? <laughs> Is there higher wisdom than just kind of like what we know? And is there a law, right and wrong, that we must obey? Not we'd like to obey, but we must obey. Every society seeks this, and this is why every society has religion. So the secular wise man, if you want to call him, I, 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 you know, I always want to put that in quote. You always know, I call it the wise man. I always go, the wise man. Because the secular wise man is really the secular dumb man. He may have a pile of PhDs from either Berkeley or Stanford, but as long as he thinks religion doesn't matter, that's crazy. That's crazy talk. Every society wants to know, is there wisdom? Is there right and wrong in a law? I'm not even talking about salvation. We're not talking about heaven. We're not talking about hell. We're not talking about forgiveness of sins. We're not talking about being loved by God. We're not talking about any of that stuff. We're just talking about a secularly important matter. In our society, if we do the things that are right, that we can have a good life, and our, our culture and our society can be strong. Let me tell you something. Every society that's ever taken this book seriously and started to obey it, I'm not even talking about salvation. I'm just talking about right and wrong and wisdom. That society gets strong. And I, I dare you to go do this. I'll dare you to go look through history 
and look at every society that started to take the Bible seriously and see what starts to happen. You know, things, interesting things start to happen in these types of society. They stop sacrificing their children to other gods. Men start, men stop beating their wives. Men start becoming faithful. They start becoming gentle with their children. They, start, they stop selling their children off into slavery. They invent schools because in order to read the Bible, you have to learn how to read. In order to learn how to read, we need to have schools. And then they realize every child needs to have a school. Every child needs the Bible. So then they invent things like public education, which then the human potentiality starts to grow. And then people start to become smart. Their talent starts to come out. And actually, the Bible produces prosperity. It actually makes whole nations richer and stronger. But then other things start to happen. They start to find out things like, you need to be a person of your word. And actually, powerful people are not respected by God if they're liars, and God will burn them if they're liars. So it doesn't matter whether if you're a king or a powerful person. There's lots of passages in the Bible where God says, I'll burn you if you're a liar and you oppress the poor. There's lots of passages. By the way, this is why oppressive governments don't like the Bible. They don't care about the Jesus message. They think that's stupid. The parts of the Bible they don't like is when the Bible says, Oh, king, you're an evil king because you oppress the poor and God will burn you. And so when people read that, you know what they start to do? They realize if people read that and believe that, they'll rebel against the king. And it happens. Do you know why, what, what, what started the Civil Rights Movement? The Civil Rights Movement wasn't because Americans were so good and we we're like, oh, we don't want to be racist anymore. Of course we want to be racist because everybody is racist. You know what started the Civil Rights Movement? Because a man named Martin Luther King Jr. read the Bible and preached the Bible and said, white racist people, you're evil and God's going to burn you. So please repent. And we're an evil nation. So, like I said, we're not even talking about salvation. And people begin to realize you have to just keep your word. And so there's something called contracts. And you have to, and then you, we put your hand on the Bible. I, I swear to tell the truth and, all, and nothing but, you know, so help me God. And we say these things. So our, our law proceedings, our justice becomes actually just. And so when people keep their, um, their word, they don't just throw their wives overboard. They keep their word in contracts. You know what happens? We can trust each other. We have a contract. I promise to do this. And I respect the law, and I actually respect the Bible. And then when I swear oaths, and then you know what happens? I make a contract with you. You make a contract. We both keep our word. And then I trust you. And in a trustworthy society, the economics starts to arise. It's incredible. All boats start to rise when there's integrity, when there's good marriages, when people aren't enslaved by, uh, by sex sexual sins or addictions or greed or lying or power. Instead, they take the wisdom and the law of the Bible, whole society starts to rise. So that's just, that's just an empirical thing. And we're in really big trouble. I don't know if you know this. Our society is, we know we call it post-Christian now. Just, just take a look around, right? Just take a look around. The United States is going to go bankrupt sometime soon. I don't know if you know this. We can't, we, we don't, we can't, we, we can't pay our debts back. That's a lot. That's a, if you can't pay your debt back, you're a promise breaker. You're not a person of your word. 
The whole nation is this way. We divorce is really easy. We certainly oppress women and children. We literally kill unborn children. And we, um, and of course, powerful people abuse abuse uh, poor people. And I, I don't know what, which. I'm, I'm just going to say we're going to elect a president. Guess which one? But it doesn't matter which one. Who you? Who does, it doesn't matter which one. Um, you know, you don't have to guess which one I'm talking about because both of them abuse power. And this is the type of society we're in. And if we do not respect the wisdom and the law, and I'm not even talking about salvation, the whole society will crumble and we're already crumbling. So that's part one, okay? Let's go to part two, the power of the Bible. Um, this one I won't spend too much time in, but I'll just give you a couple of quick stories. Um, the, the Bible changes people, especially hurting people, sinful people. By the way, that's everybody. I just said everybody. And it doesn't kind of change them. The Bible profoundly, deeply changes them. And I don't know if you do know this, but if you listen to me preach, I, I regularly use this, this piece of evidence on you. I, I use it on you all the time. Since um, most people today don't want to hear a kind of like a, a, a theological argument. It's this is the Bible says this, this is the Bible says this, this is hence it's true. People go, oh, that's true. You know, most people don't. So then what I do is I just like, boom, I just throw power at your face. <laughs> that's, that's what I do. I do it regularly. So let me give you two ways. I've done this, and so if you've been, you've heard, you might have heard these stories, but I'm just, I'll just quickly, you know, summarize them again. Um, there is a brother who's a friend of mine out on the, uh, on the Native American reservation. His name is Jason Forehand, and I might have told you about Jason. Oh, Jason's about yay tall. He's a beefy, muscular dude. He's like totally bald. He's a white guy. He's totally bald. His wife is Native American, and he's got, he's got some tats, and when Jason was younger, he was a crystal meth addict. He was a crystal meth dealer. And um, he's strong. And he has a, he's got certain tats. And I bet you when he was a crystal meth dealer, that is not a guy you would want to cross because he probably would have done violence to you. But he met Jesus through the Bible. And if you meet Jason today, you cannot believe that he was a crystal meth dealer. He is gentle. He is kind. He is deeply loving. He's a good husband. He's a good father. He's faithful in his um, dealings. Uh, he's quit jobs where it was going to impact his finances because his boss was um, abusive and a liar and a crook. He says, I can't be a part of this. And I can't let you be my boss. And I trust God more than, than your power. This is what Jason's like. Jason's not a theory. He's not a story. You can go meet him. You can go meet him. You can go sit down with him. And you can say, hey, Jason. And you can hear his own story. And if you doubt his story, you can go around and ask all the other people in the, in, in the neighborhood. Because when Jason was a younger man, everybody in Bishop hated him. <laughs> they all hated him because he was a liar and a crook and an angry and a disgusting human being. <laughs> and Jason tells this one incredible story. He's a volunteer fireman. And, and you, it's not easy to become a volunteer fireman because only the best men are accepted. 
And his pastor is on the volunteer fire crew, and his pastor nominated him to become a volunteer fireman after he, he got saved. And you know what all the other volunteer firemen said? Jason, are you serious? <laughs> they said, isn't, that, isn't that, that disgusting guy that we all keep our kids away from, that we all can't stand, that, you know, like, he is the last person in this town that we ever want that guy talking to our daughter? That Jason? And his pastor said, yeah, that Jason. And those men got to know Jason, and they said, you've changed. I don't know if I believe in Jesus, but you changed. Yeah, join us. <laughs> He's one of the, one of the most respected men, He's a, or the crew of the most respected men in town. I'll give you one more example. I told this story and I, don't, um, I won't give you his uh, uh, true full name because I think it would be embarrassing to him personally. I'm just going to call his name Young Lee. And Young Lee is a Chinese brilliant. Um, he works for a hedge fund in Wall Street. And he came out of Harvard. I don't know him personally. I, I know another guy who, who's, who's good friends with him. He's a pastor friend of mine. And Young Lee graduated from Harvard in three years with two degrees. <laughs> Young Lee is Chinese, and he's one of these guys that didn't get an A in every class. He got an A-plus in every class. And then he went to Harvard, and then, you, you know how, you know, you, when, you, when you were in school, the kid who went off to Harvard, you were like, whoa, he's a brain. At Harvard, they did that to him. <laughs> They're like, oh, dude, Young's in, in class. We know what, we know who's going to set the, the, the curve in this class. <laughs> but as a young man, actually, he was in pain because he just felt pressure that his identity was to be the smart guy and to achieve and to succeed. That was it. So on the outside, he looks like the most brilliant, successful person you could possibly ever meet. But on the inside, he was deeply poor. And he did not grow up in a Christian family. And then he started reading the Bible and then he met Jesus. He got recruited out of Harvard. He worked for a hedge fund. You know what a hedge fund is? It's when a guy who's worth $500 million hires a guy out of Harvard to say, make me another $500 million with my $500 million. <laughs> so you know, he, he sits on massive piles of money and does, I don't know, sophisticated smart guy things to make more money. <laughs> you can imagine. He gets paid very, very well. He lives in Manhattan. He gets paid incredibly well. You know what church he goes to? He goes to a church in Queens. And one of his closest friends in Queens, at this church in a poor neighborhood, and he's a part of a small group. And one of his closest friends is a guy who used to be a former drug addict. And when the two of them sit and talk about the Bible, they laugh and they're close. The Bible is power. The Bible is power. And by the way, this isn't just some kind of interesting thing. I'm just giving you two particularly dramatic stories. This happens. I've seen marriages on the brink of death saved. I've seen people who almost committed suicide, and then they get saved. I've seen people conquer addictions, anger, I know a brother who hated his father and wanted to murder his father. Now he loves his father. All of it is from the word of God. 
children, children who are depressed, start to come to life. And people, people do crazy things with their money after they read the Bible. Crazy things. They start being radical. They don't, they're not generous like they give $5 to a poor, to a bum on the street. Not that kind of generous. More like, how about if I take on another mortgage so that I could give, you know, $200,000 to that ministry that reaches poor people on the street? That kind of generous. The Bible is power. Let me take you to the final portion of my message. There is a, a question that um, John Piper raises in his book, A Peculiar Glory. And um, the subtitle of the book is, How the Christian Scriptures Revealed Their Complete Truthfulness. Okay? And the question that he raises is this. Um, if you have deep philosophical questions, um, but you're not a really learned person, and so you can't understand you know, these sophisticated, I mean, I'm that kind of a person. And um, actually, as a boy, and especially as a teenager, I had, you know, I had sophisticated doubts about Christianity. I grew up in a, in a family of devout Christians. And so a lot of people think, oh, you grew up in a Christian family. That's why you're a Christian. I'm thinking, well, there's lots of people that grow up in Christian family, and then they, they just become atheists. I, I could have been one of those. I had, I had those kinds of questions. Um, but... And then they say, some people need to read the Bible, and they need to find out about historical scholarship. So they need really specialized historical scholars to tell you the really important things that, they, that will help prop up the, the reliability of scriptures. And I did that for you last week. There are people who need those kinds of things. They need to find out about the, man, the biblical manuscripts, the reliability. And for some of you, that is you. And last week, I gave you a nerdy... <laughs> A nerdy message to help those kinds of people. But actually, according to John Piper, and of course he's absolutely right, most people aren't like that. Most people just have doubts. And the historical scholars, they either can't understand those books, or they won't have time to read those books, or they're illiterate and they can't read them at all. But yet they have real doubts about the Bible. Would God have left the trustworthy of the Bible to a bunch of scholars? Would God have left a whole bunch of people saying, if you can read the sophisticated book, then you'll know that the Bible is trustworthy? Of course not. If that is the kind of God of the, um, there is, that's a, that would be a dumb God. <laughs> because then he would only be able to save very educated people that are very doggedly will read certain kinds of books. I happen to be one of those kind of people, but that would really be like saving one, like less than 1% of the population. He's right. How can you, let's call it a common Jane, a common Joe, but you're a common Jane or Joe in America, but there's common Joe or Jane in Uganda or in Indonesia, and they might be illiterate they can't actually even read the Bible. And actually, huge chunks of the earth is this way and throughout history. How can they know with certainty, not even with probability, because you can say, well, that's probable. The scholarship is, I guess, I guess that's, a, that's a pretty good argument. I think we can have a 98% possibility that that's, the Bible is probably true. That's not what John Piper is arguing. No, the Bible offers you 
100% certainty, and you do not need historical scholarship. It's helpful, and so it's nice when you have a nerdy pastor like Susang, and he'll you know, pipe you through some of the scholarship. But how can you get to that? I want to take you to a passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. It is, it is a, it's, a, it's a passage worth memorizing. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. This is the Bible's way. This is the Bible's power. This is the Bible's power to help persuade and convince just any regular Joe or Jane, whether in Uganda or America. Here's what it says. For God said, let light shine out of darkness, because that's what we need. We need to know that there's a light, and that light is from God. Let light shine out of darkness. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here's the, the way I, I want to end this message. How can you know the Bible is really true? I, I gave you one, it has the wisdom of God. It has the law of God. It, can, it literally can make whole nations rich and powerful and, and make their people peaceful and have integrity. Um, that's one argument. A second argument is you can just meet people and crazy things that happen to them and it only happens through the Bible, through the gospel. But how can you know? Whether you're, you know, regular Joe, Jane. The Bible has something, there's a radioactive power in it. If you will read it with an open heart and a humble mind. And that power is to shine a light. And that light is to give you God's glory. <laughs> let me put it this way. Glory of God, that seems like one of those religious... Let me, cha let me change that. The beauty of God. <laughs> the gl glory is sort of like an old theological word that we don't use anymore. I mean, I don't know. Glory is like a beauty that's intensely great. You know, like there's a, the beauty of a basketball player and then there's LeBron James. <laughs> okay? LeBron James is not a beautiful basketball player. He's a glorious basketball player. Get it? Okay? You, you getting what I'm saying? The Bible has the power to shine a light, which we'll see, because most people are blind. We're, we're just in a darkness. We cannot see what is beautiful about God, what is compelling about God. The Bible helps you see by sight, not by your eyes, but by, by, by seeing, by reading. The Word helps you see the light of the intense beauty of God, His glory. And every human heart was wired to, to embrace and long for this glory. And when you see this glory, you'll know it's true. This God is my God. This Bible is true. There are lots of Christians I know. Um, the former children's pastor in our church is J.W. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I grew up in a Christian home. 
and I had, I'm an intellectual, and I had all these hardcore like doubt questions, and I had to work through doubt questions to come to a deep faith. J.W. did not grow up in a Christian home. He heard the gospel for the first time, and after that, there was never a doubt. <laughs> he went to UCSD. He had all these professors attack his faith, and I asked him, J.W., that never bothered you? He's like, nope, they're dumb. <laughs> they're dumb. I know Jesus. The Bible told me Jesus. The Bible is true. It was simple. He was 100% certain. I'm going to read you a passage from this book, Piper's book. He says it so well to close this message. And actually, he's, uh, he's citing a, a, a man far more brilliant even than he. Um, but actually, it wasn't his brilliance. It was his godliness. And that's Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon called The Excellencies of Christ, the glory, <laughs> the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See? If you gaze at Jesus, you'll see the intense beauty of God, and you'll know he's true. And, and Revelations 5 is, you know, that's the passage where Edwards wrote this. And in Revelations 5, Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. He's a lion, and he roars. He's the most powerful being of the jungle, so to speak, as we like to say, but he's also the lamb of God. The lion of the tribe of Judah and a lamb that has been slain. And Edwards read that and said the excellencies of Jesus Christ. And this is how we know the Bible's true. What makes Christ glorious? The glory, the beauty is, this is Edward's words, an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. Uh, that's how he talks. <laughs> that's, that's why most of us don't read him, <laughs> okay? But thankfully, Piper does read him and understands him. For example, echoing Edwards, echoing Edwards, this, this is so great. We admire Christ for his transcendence, but even more because the transcendence of his greatness is mixed with submission to God. Transcendence, yet submission. We marvel at Christ because his uncompromising justice, but is also tempered with mercy. His majesty, there's incredible majesty, and yet it is also sweetened by meekness. In his equality with God, he has a deep reverence for God. Though he is worthy of all good, he was patient to suffer evil. Not even evil, the most horrible evil. His sovereign dominion over the world was closed with a spirit of obedience. He's sovereign, utter dominion. And yet there's a spirit in Jesus of obedience and submission. He baffled the proud scribes with his wisdom. The most sophisticated intellectuals, he baffled them because he was smarter than them. But he was simple enough that the children would come flock to him. He could still the storm with a word, and yet he would not strike down the Samaritans with lightning, nor would he take himself down from the cross. 
There is a template in the human heart created by God, ready to receive with self-authenticated certainty, certainty, when it encounters this divine glory. We were made to know and enjoy this person, Jesus Christ, the lowly incarnation of the all-glorious God. We may sense it in our weariness in, in our, or in our worldwide dreams. You get it? Sometimes you're just so weary. And you feel so broken and like nothing. And who is the person you turn to? Is it not Jesus? And sometimes maybe we feel strong and we have great dreams and we want to go and expend ourselves for something glorious. And who gives us that dream? Is it not Jesus? And we know. It is written on our house, in our hearts. This God-man is true. That's how we know the Bible is true. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we live in a, a time of great foolishness. And we are corrupted by the lies of this age including the pastors, including me. And we regularly know in our head that the Bible is more powerful than all these things, is more powerful. Your word has power. It will accomplish. It's like the rain and the snow. It will accomplish what you set it out to do. And yet, we regularly look for all kinds of other things. We look for, I want to be smart, or I need talent, or I need smart and talented people to be on my side instead of letting us be immersed by you and let your word surround us. Forgive us. Have mercy on us. And pour out your grace. And open our weak eyes, our eyes of faith, and let the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ, the glory of God in the face of Jesus, shine so brightly into us through your word that we would run to you, believe in you, indeed, that we would even die for you. So we pray that as we go to your table now, we're going to eat your word, the living word who is Jesus Christ. And we pray that your word would come into us and you would unleash its great power into our life. Praise Jesus' name.